0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today. And as always, a big shout out to my executive producer, Andre Suttles with Suttles Solution for helping to make this podcast possible. I'm excited. I hope you all are hungry for today's episode because we're going to be serving up some (laughs) wonderful tips for you. I'm sitting here with John Malik on our our Zoom call. John, I appreciate you joining me here today. Pleasure's all mine, sir. Definitely. And I did kind of give a little bit of a teaser on what it is you do and some of your expertise when I mentioned, you know, I hope everybody's hungry, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself really quick to our audience if they haven't met you and maybe haven't had the pleasure of tasting some of your delicious food. Give them a quick rundown on your journey and what your expertise is.
1: Uh, so you want me to start and like the delivery ward at the hospital or what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, Let's it's see how much time we have. <laughs> so I've been a, so I've been a chef here in Greenville. My wife and I moved here um, in the um, mid nineties, right. And uh, spent five years as chef at the Augusta grill from 95 to 2000. And, um, and then after that um, we, we opened our own restaurant Uh, in 2001 called 33 Liberty and um got kind of famous at the Augusta Grill I did uh, a little time on Food Network and and I was their flavor of the month for about a year I guess and um you know and and television's weird it's kind of ethereal when it comes and goes and and uh, anyway it it went (laughs) (laughs) and uh so we had we had our restaurant 30 through Liberty had that for 8 years uh did not survive the fall of 2008 you know the financial crisis uh spent after that I spent 3 years at uh the Cascades which is a fancy retirement community I was a food and beverage director um and then after that I um I got into uh consulting you know I had a job offer um what, about a year after I left the Cascades and uh, they didn't really need me full-time, but they needed somebody to put the pieces together. And so I started, started, uh, it was my first consulting job and uh, it was here in, in Greenville and um, did that for about seven years. And now um, it, I was, I'd recently go back to work full-time for the Sobies for table 301 as the chef of the loft, which is their private event space. Nice. And of course, (laughs) 2008 comes around again, right in the form of 2020. So now I'm (laughs) back consulting. And And I
0: I will ask this first question because a lot of our listeners and and a lot of the entrepreneurs know how difficult and competitive and hard the restaurant industry can be. And, And to have a career in that, and especially in consulting, what is it you think is, is the key? And obviously there's a lot of elements, but you having the chef background, right? And and when it comes to running a restaurant, a successful restaurant, what do you think is the key to, to kind of separate yourself from the others in that regard?
1: As far as a restaurant goes or, or as far consulting. as a restaurant goes, and maybe right, so, so to the,
0: the chef aspect as well.
1: All right. So if you want an, if you're going to have a successful restaurant, aspirational restaurant, and when I say aspirational, I mean um, not necessarily white tablecloth, but if you're going to have a chef-driven with regional cuisine or intriguing cuisine, and you're going to use local ingredients or something like that, then you need to have a voice. Your food should have a voice, and you should have one thing on that menu, one thing that you have fiddled with and, and, and doctored and gotten to a point where this is the best representation of this particular dish in town. This is the most intriguing, most dynamic, most craziest, most whatever, but you need to have one thing on that menu that just screens, you know, Hey, this is Ted's grill. Let's go to Ted's grill. I love Ted's grill, but I really like that thing that they do that. You know, and whether whatever that thing is, you know, maybe it's a frozen margarita or maybe it's a Bloody Mary or maybe it's a peach cobbler or something. But yeah. you've got to yeah. really, you know, you got to have one thing on there that 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 just draws people in. You know,
0: I love that because I think that's definitely something that um, people don't necessarily pay attention to. But they all I'm sure all of our listeners know that one restaurant that they go to because when they're craving a grilled cheese, for example, they go to this one spot or when right. they're craving this one dish, they go to this one spot, so it's really almost making that dish your identity and to be the the premier choice when it comes right. to that, that one dish. Right. How do you go about the process of finding that identity, whether it be personal as a chef because I imagine. When you're first getting into the culinary arts, you learn a lot of skills. And I've seen a lot of people as they're hopping into entrepreneurship or they're trying to figure out what they do in life just in general to kind of make this applicable to any, anyone listening. Sometimes we have so many options and we want to do mm-hmm. it all. How can right. we narrow that
1: down? As a, So we're talking about a diner or from a diner's perspective or from a an operator's perspective? I'd say from uh, an operator's perspective,
0: kind of making, using the restaurant and and, um, the culinary arts as a metaphor to life, using the advancement in the skill as an advancement to how we develop ourselves. Um, Because I know a lot of folks who are doing a whole bunch of things and they're not necessarily an expert in one. They don't have that one dish yet.
1: Right. So, uh, so what I said earlier is your food has got to have a voice, right? Mm -hmm. Now we all know there's, there's plenty of diners out there. There's plenty of cheesecake factories. There's plenty of TGIs. Those places like that do not have a voice, right? If you go into the TGI Fridays here or the one in Chicago, Illinois, it's going to feel the same. The food's going to be the same. Everything's going to be the same, right? That's, that's why they're, Places like that—that's their goal, right? So, if you want to have a unique, chef-driven, intriguing restaurant, and that doesn't mean expensive, but you know, think about like the um, that little pasta place in uh, Gather, right? Uh, what is that? Naked Pasta, yeah, right? Golly, that place has a voice, you know. It's this guy has been working on noodles for years, and he's and he's perfected his version of four or five different dishes. Uh, One of the things I try to talk operators out of is trying to be everything for everybody. And that's not going to win you raving fans, right? You've got to focus and your food has to have a voice. Um, There's a, there's a great little place in Malden called the low country shrimper. Right. I mean, where can you get a where can you get a fried oyster po' boy in this town? Right. Well, <laughs> I think there's two places that I know of. And, and one of them is the is the low country shrimper. Now, it's it's kind of a I mean, I wouldn't say it's a dive, but um, it's nondescript um, location. But it's a cool place. And, and you go in there and you feel welcome and it's full of smiling faces and well, smiling eyes right now behind the mask. And they've got this cool kind of um, uh, southern Alabama style of uh, fried seafood restaurant that really works for them. And, you know, you don't go in there for a pimento cheeseburger. You don't go in there for a uh, Caesar salad or whatever. Um, he's, that place has got a really, a, a really cool voice that works in that space. So the, yeah. the food goes with the hospitality, goes with the owner, the whole thing just works perfectly. So that's, I think that's the, that's the trick. If you want to have something, um, something above and beyond just feeding people, because yeah. if you just, if you're just going to open up something to feed people, you're never, you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And I use that question to kind of set up the your story in terms of having a voice and, and having that uniqueness that stands out. Because as we discussed a little bit about your, your backstory, I'd love for you to kind of pull the listeners into the start of your culinary journey. Because um, I think we mentioned going down the path of being an attorney <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> you you altered that. What was that like? <laughs> Breaking the news to to your family, to your folks, and and then taking that jump to to go down a, a different path than what most would have expected.
1: Well, my, I broke my dad's heart. God rest his soul. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, my my dad was an attorney and then a judge, and. And me being his oldest son, it was like, it was just a given, you know. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have, this country has half the world's attorneys. We don't need any more attorneys, Ted. We have plenty, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. well represented. <laughs> <laughs> we, right. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in a big family. There was five of us and uh, grew up in South Louisiana. Um, and my mom, my mom's cool. My mom grew up in Mexico. She was Texan. Her, her parents were Texans, right? But grand, Granddaddy was a professional cattle rancher, and so when she was like one years old, they they moved to um, Durango, Mexico, and Granddaddy managed a big ranch in Durango. So that's where Mom grew up, and uh, they they had to do everything because you know in Durango in the 1930s, you didn't. It's not like you could jump in the car and drive down to Publix, you know. That's yeah, <laughs> they were they were 500 miles from a modern city. So they were very self-supporting. And so they did, they did everything they were. And, and I think granddaddy had about 24 caballeros um, that came and went, you know, as on a regular basis. And so uh, grandma was constantly, she had her and another lady that helped her and she was constantly cooking, constantly growing. Um, They had one guy that hunted for the, for the ranch. And so that's the atmosphere that my mom grew up in. Right. Yeah. Um, So when I was a kid, my mom was always cooking, even though she was usually working too. She was a nurse. Um, And I was me being the middle child. I kind of gravitated towards, you know, being helpful, I guess. And that meant time in the kitchen. And um, I can remember, being a little kid and, you know, making bread from scratch. Mom made, you know, made bread from scratch and she cooked all this cool Mexican stuff, <laughs> which in South Louisiana, I was, I was the, uh, I was the outlier, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> everybody else's mom. You remember when you were a little kid and, and, and uh, like, if your friend's mom was, co- was cooking something cool, you'd make an excuse for going over to Billy's house or whatever, because, because Billy's mom was making whatever, you know, cheeseburgers, whatever you wanted that night. And your mom, yeah. you didn't like what your mom was fixing. So anyway, uh, you know, in South Louisiana, everybody's mom was cooking andouille or gumbo or whatever. And my mom would be making, you know, chicken enchiladas or, <laughs> or uh mole poblano or something like that. So, uh, so I grew up in this cool environment where, you know, I saw these two distinct different cuisines, you know, and that, and that, really set me on that path. And when I was in college, I just started um, cooking at um, a couple of nondescript restaurants, you know, just kind of, it was kind of a college town. And, um, but I loved being back there and putting things together and, and trying to figure out if I can, you know, how can you make this better? How can you make that better? What can I do? What can I do tomorrow that I didn't do today that would make the job a little bit more efficient or whatever. And, uh, um, so yeah, went I with a degree in English lit and uh, told my dad that I wanted to go to culinary school and not law school. And, and um, you know, off I went <laughs> without what his blessing. Like? What was that, that reaction like? <laughs> I you went, oh, you don't place. want to know. <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, He, well, so my dad, uh, my My dad grew up in Florida. He did not grow up with his natural parents. His father died when he was very young and his mother, uh, shipped him off to, um, the aunt and uncle in Florida. Um, and the aunt and uncle had a diner, um, in, uh, in Florida and Tampa. And so when my dad was a little kid, he washed dishes every like five days a week for like five years straight or something. (laughs) So when I said, I want to be a, I want to be a cook, right? (laughs) That's all my dad could think of, right? Bad memories,
0: yeah. So when you got (laughs) in (laughs) on this journey, I think it's interesting because a lot of times when we, it sounds like you've been surrounded by food your whole life. And even, I didn't even know the story of your your dad having that background as well. Do you think you were almost, I guess, pre-exposed to coming into that culinary experience? Was it something, I mean, spending time in the kitchen? It sounds like, you spent a lot of your life surrounded by it, but it wasn't until later in life you decided to take that jump. Is that something you think you were prepped for?
1: Yeah. You know, um, um, I mean, I was lucky that my mom had that childhood experience, that young adult experience of growing up in such an environment. Yeah. Um, and so she didn't like the idea of taking shortcuts, you know? So if she was going to, make something she was going to make something right Mm -hmm. so even if she'd been on her feet for nine hours at the hospital she'd come home she had already planned out what dinner was going to be and the stuff was already there you know she was not one for um you know shooting from the hip so to speak yeah so um and so when she shopped she kind of she kind of planned it out you know well this will be tuesday this will be wednesday this will be thursday and so this is what i need um And so, and then when I was in, um, when I was, I can remember being in college and cooking now got to keep in mind that in South Louisiana, we all cook, right? (laughs) Everybody cooks. Um, but I can remember being in college and I had, um, I would cook for the, for the dorm one night, you know, I'd I'd say, Hey, I had little appliances in my, (laughs) in the dorm room and, Hey guys, I'm cooking tonight. What do y'all, you know, do y'all, you know, everybody chip in a couple of dollars and, you know, and, and then we just sit around and I would, I'd cook for six or eight guys or whatever. Wouldn't I do that a couple of times a month? And then I can remember, um, remember I was probably like a junior in college and I remember turning on the today show and, um, and darn if, um, uh, Paul Perdone, right. Probably our country's first celebrity chef. He's on TV on the today show cooking sweet potatoes. And redfish and sweet potatoes in South Louisiana. That was something that you bought on the side of the darn highway. You know, it wasn't, it was not fancy food at all. Right. And, um, and he had made sweet potato hash and he's putting black and black and redfish on top of it. And on the darn today show. And this is, you know, I mean, cooks, cooks or chefs on TV. That was so rare back then. And, um, And I can remember watching him, you know, and, you know, Paul Perdome at the time he was, he was pushing 400 pounds. I mean, he was a big guy and he was the antithesis of what you typically saw on TV as far as a celebrity goes. Right. And it's like, look at this guy. He's, he's enormous. He's got this funky South Louisiana accent and he's cooking sweet potatoes. And the audience loves him, And he's on the, today's show and he's getting all this press and, and that really kind of uh, put the light on, you know, the light went on and I was like, I think I can do this, you know? Nice. So um, that's what really, you know, pointed me down that road, you know?
0: What was the journey like after, um, after seeing that and jumping into the culinary experience? I know we talked about traveling and starting a new life Charleston and things i'd love to jump into that for the viewers really quick in terms of making a career out of it because A lot of us have this passion have this thing that we've grown and we've worked on and we've tampered with our recipe for so long And here we are Mm -hmm. starting to present it to the world What are some of the challenges that that you had to overcome? As you're making this a career and and a a living
1: um well Probably my big challenge was that, the, uh, um, you know, I was always, uh, when I was younger, I was always looking for um, another, I guess, another parent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's a question from a therapist. But anyway, so in the, indep- in the independent restaurants, I ended up in a series of independent restaurants where a year and a half here, year and a half there, year and a half there never quite finding my way. Right. Yeah. And, and one was kind of Charleston food. One was kind of Myrtle beach fried fish food. Another one was kind of quasi Italian, you know? And, um, so all I was doing was following somebody else's formula. Right. So if you, if you fancy yourself, a cook that's going somewhere that's that's one day going to receive accolades from the press and from bloggers and from traditional and non-traditional media then you really need to hone in on what you know the, those those career decisions where you work they really need to make sense for you you know for where you envision yourself five and ten years down the road for your for your 10-year goal yeah. you know, and I didn't really have that for a while. And that kind of, you know, so if, if you don't, I think it's, then you get into an environment in a, in a busy restaurant where it's easy to fall into that, the, that habit of drudgery where it's like, Oh, I got to go to work and we're going to be busy and Oh, this is going to be terrible. And you know, you're getting the job done, but you're not really vested. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, that was my big, um, struggle and that would be my um my advice to a young cook is like does this particular job make sense for your five-year ten-year goal
0: yeah something that something you said that just sparked the question in me when you mentioned you know if you're like oh i gotta go to work and you go there and you're not really invested or whatnot and i think this could transcend to almost any industry that someone might be working but specifically when we're talking in 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 being a chef in culinary arts, if you're going to work every day, you're not really invested. Do you think people can taste the difference in the food?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, it, it depends if you're, if you've been to, you know, John's grill mm-hmm. every, uh, every month. And then that fifth month you go there and it's not quite right. It's not, doesn't the food doesn't really, reach out and grab you nothing really says, wow, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe the, the chef is not feeling it. Maybe he's been, he's been away. Maybe there's been a, you know, culture change or something like that. Um, that's, that's, uh, you know, hopefully that's when they call me, right? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I love that, and I, I asked that question on purpose because I think you know you you hear all the time, oh, you can taste the love in it, you can taste the right. love in the food and and everything, and it's almost as if you know, quite frankly, you can taste the love in in the work that someone does, and when when someone perfects their their recipe, and you you eat that dish that you know someone put their time and their expertise into it, you could actually taste that on the other end. And and that goes for more than just cooking. It goes for, if there are days I know where I go on air at at my station and I know I'm probably not delivering the newscast the way uh, I typically do. I'm not at my best today. And I think everyone has those days, it's okay. But when it's a day in and day out occurrence, that's when it's maybe time to revisit that five-year plan or what you're in it for, and really kind of what you're working towards and moving forward towards.
1: Yeah, that's you- good. If you're introspective, if you can, if you know that you've you weren't up to to par, mm-hmm. you know that's really good. You know, because then you can then you can look back and say, all right, how can I avoid that? What can I do better tomorrow?
0: Yeah. And I love that. I actually wrote that down. You said, what can I do tomorrow that I didn't do today? And I think a lot of us can learn from that moving forward because so many of us get comfortable in, um, a craft or we get comfortable where we are. Oh, I make good food. People are coming, they're eating. I'm good. But that is, is definitely not a good habit to be in. Where do you think, I guess for you was the turn, where was the turn in your career for you as you're starting to find your way? When did that kind of come And What was, I guess, the feedback you saw in your life as a result of it.
1: All right. So, uh, so I was chef at Augusta grill. That was my first uh, job here. My first real uh, chef job here in Greenville, right? Mm-hmm. Augusta grill on uh, 1818 Augusta street. Right. And uh, they were doing this kind of uh, uh, quasi city, new American food. Right. And um, so I'm there, I'm there a year and a half, maybe two years of my five year g- uh, journey there. Right. And, and I can remember talking to one of my guys, my sous chef, Robert. I was looking at a food and wine magazine, and there was um, – uh, who was it? It was this uh, chef from Dallas, Dean Faring, who was, who was a big deal for like 10, 15 years, right? And I hated looking at Dean Faring. It was like every darn food magazine, every month, Dean Faring, right? Now, the guy was a chef at this, this gorgeous restaurant in this beautiful hotel. It's called the Mansion on Turtle Creek. He was too darn good looking for his own good. Right. I mean, he had a smile like yours, you know, this beautiful smile. And then you pick up this magazine and here was this handsome, smiling chef doing this gorgeous food. But at the same time, it's like, don't these people have anybody else to write about what's going on here? You know? Yeah. And so, and, uh, and I really started to think about it and i and I usually journal in the morning and um, and so I realized that the guys—it wasn't just Dean—it was like five or six guys, right—that the food magazines were always writing about, and they were doing food that was very specific to their region, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were and they were seeking out. I mean, back then, you know, we didn't have a farmers' market or anything like that. You had to go find farmers and go drag, <laughs> you know, drag them, kicking and screaming into the <laughs> to the restaurant. So that's what I started doing. It was just like, I'm not doing anything that says Greenville, South Carolina. No wonder, you know? Yeah. I mean, I knew I was probably never going to be on the cover of food and wine, but maybe, maybe there's a reason why it wasn't because he was so handsome or whatever, but it was because he was doing something really cool with the raw ingredients of a 50 mile radius. Yeah. That's, that's, what really hit me, you know, that, that was something I wasn't doing, you know, and if I was going to be true to myself, to my Southern roots, my Southern heritage and all these great ingredients that we have in the upstate, you know, I I couldn't ignore them any, any longer, you know, out with the portobello mushrooms, no more portobello mushrooms, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what was the feedback you got as you started being more true to yourself and incorporating some of those local ingredients and, and local cuisine in, into your dishes?
1: So um, that's where, you know, after about six months of doing that, seven months, I mean, I, I really, and I, and I talked to the boss about it, the owner and I said, hey, here's, this has been bugging me and I know we're busy and I know we're successful and the restaurant's making money, but I want to I want to steer us into something more Southern. Right. And I want to start buying local ingredients and, and um, I just want to get the word out. And, and so Bob was like, Oh, okay, let's, you know, give it a shot. And um, I think it was like six months in and I got a letter from back then gourmet magazine. Mm -hmm. People would write gourmet magazine. So, so if you, you and your fiance go, you know, to, wherever you go to LA and you have this great dish, then the way to get the recipe was you would write gourmet and say, Hey, I was, I was in LA, had this amazing dish, this thing with the snappers and the, and the baby leeks and the brown butter and whatever. Can you get the recipe for me? Mm -hmm. So then they would, they would reach out to that chef. And then that recipe may or may not appear in, in gourmet. They had one section, a travel section, Right. And so six, seven months uh, in, I got this little postcard from Gourmet. And, uh, right, yeah. and somebody had asked for a, for a recipe for the spoon bread uh, with mm. country ham. And um, country ham, bite down the onions, and uh, uh, spoon bread, right? And I was just like, I was like going to pass out, right? I was like, <gasps> boom. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm doing something right. Yeah, and, we and you ne- get that feedback. Right, exactly, exactly. That was that was a big deal. I mean, that was like you know, Ted. That was like ninety seven, nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, I know. Wow, I'm trying to think. I was probably I
0: might have been in grade school or just getting into. I can't. But really quick, is I know we're we're coming towards uh, the last few minutes of the podcast and, and stuff. But you've been in Greenville, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina, you've been here as really seeing the food, uh, I guess the attention around the restaurant and and just the food culture grow the past few years. And even Greenville, South Carolina is starting to get more attention as a foodie spot. Mm -hmm. What has that experience been like, Uh, not kind of just watching it, but kind of also being pretty much almost at the center of it as it's growing all around you. How has that been watching that develop these past 10, 20 years?
1: It, it's been cool, you know, but, but something like that, it's a, it's a long process. So it's not exactly overnight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was, um, you know, I spent a couple of years on a accommodations tax committee when we, when um, we had our restaurant and uh, learning how all the money that the city collects, how they use that towards, uh, working on uh, getting publicity for a year, two years, three years, four years, five years down the road, mm-hmm. and um, so so that's a that's a long process. But it's but it's also it was it was cool and it was a lot of fun to to be a part of it and and um, you know and I played a very small part, you know, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and we're still you know it's going to come back. This this whole twenty twenty mess is going to it'll go away soon enough. Mm -hmm. Um and and we'll be back to like things used to be. Yeah, I I may not be here, but (laughs) I think you will.
0: (laughs) I want to ask, what do you think it is about food that brings people together?
1: You know, it's it's a language, right? I mean, food is food is a language and something that we can all agree on. You and a you and I, you know, we may differ in backgrounds and politics and religion and all this stuff, but we can sit down and have like a great meal together and, and, and enjoy it. And all that stuff can just everything, all those differences can, can, can evaporate into the ether when we're enjoying a meal in it. And that's the, I believe that's the oldest form of hospitality in the Bible. You know, there's all these great, stories of, of hospitality. And they center around something as simple as, as, as bread, right? Yeah. Bread and olive oil and, and, and maybe wine, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's, there's great instances in, in different cultures of, of hospitality in these beautiful stories. And they all take place around something as simple as bread and wine. Yeah.
0: I agree 100% and I think uh that's like the ultimate unifier is uh, is is sitting around the table and eating and I even remember reading yeah. somewhere they said you know one of the best gestures a friend or a spouse or whatnot can do is the first time they contact you they say and I'm sure you've asked your friend your spouse or this and before It's like hey did you eat right <laughs> it's, it's a simple gesture right. like, hey let's let's feed each other let's let's enjoy break bread and and and, and communicate a little bit more. Uh, I know you mentioned about kind of the the hardships that this pandemic and everything has kind of brought on the food industry and so many people. And I know it's been very hard on, on a, a lot of the mom and pop shops too. Those those uh, those locally owned restaurants and stuff. But. I always love trying to finish off the podcast on, on a positive note. And I would ask this moving forward as we're chasing our rainbows and, and we're, we're looking ahead, hopefully towards the end of this pandemic sometime soon. What do you think is the best thing that can come about from this pandemic that we can learn when we're back out together?
1: Is to, is to appreciate something as simple as a hug or smile or a pat on the back or or, sharing bread and wine with a, uh, with a friend a new friend or a familiar friend
0: yeah absolutely and i think so many people are missing that more now than ever and uh, it's it's ironic where we we've, we've talked about everything that's going on in the in in the country and we don't really touch on it on this podcast but we're in a time where what so many people in this world need is a hug communication and some time All to right. sit down and break bread and i i appreciate the work you've done Tirelessly in the food industry, the work you continue to do, and I cannot wait until we can, we can break bread once again as as we mentioned before on the phone, you know you yourself working on uh, doing a podcast, inviting folks to to break bread and eat and have some wine right. it's really a great way to connect so I, I look forward to connecting with you, John, when uh, all this is over. But, uh, but until then, I'd love to give our listeners and our, our watchers an opportunity to connect with you, reach out to you a- and find out some of the work you're doing and maybe even t- tune into your podcast as well. What's the best way they can, uh, they can find all that information.
1: So the podcast is 10 roof farm radio show. And, uh, we've, I've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at chef John Malik, M A L I K. Um, and you can, uh, I've got a, I've got my own website where I put my original essays. Um, you may have seen my latest one about moving to Belize. <laughs> yeah. I saw that you posted that earlier. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I were moving to Belize for a couple years, you know, nice. so we're going to run off the farm and, and, um, uh, um, you know, the goal is down there is to, well, I figured Ted that you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to sit around and be unemployed, then I can, why not do it in Belize? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty nice. If, if only you could take me with you. <laughs> hey, yeah, we're going to have two bedrooms, you know, so we'll, we'll have space for company. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, but I'll make but sure I'm that... going to keep writing. I'm going to keep writing while I'm down there, writing uh, original essays and, and, and hopefully if the, if the broadband is strong enough, I'll keep doing the podcast. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Uh, I'd love to kind of stay abreast of all that, what you're working on, and I'll make sure that folks can uh, go into the show notes. I'll have the links to your website and, and your Instagram and stuff so folks can, can keep up with you. I look forward to seeing some pictures from Belize as well. <laughs> can't, we can't wait. We're very excited. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure was all mine, sir. Absolutely. And to the listeners, I just want to recap some of the 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 nuggets and the tidbits that were dropped along the way on the podcast. First of how your food should have a voice. It's important for a chef to know their recipe and, and make sure their food has a voice. But I also want to encourage everyone listening that you are a chef of your own life and you need to have a voice at your personality and tinkering with that recipe is required. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time and everything to everybody. You can't be everything to everybody. And that means the same for your spouse as well. It's a lot to ask of somebody and it's a lot of to take on when you try to do that or expect that. And I love it when John said, what can I do tomorrow that I didn't do today? If we spend each day trying to get a little better, that's our best way to grow and little by little. If you improve 1% a day over the course of a year, that's 365% over that course of that year. I'd say that's doing pretty well. And then being true to yourself, as John was mentioning, and I'm sure a lot of us have experienced it. We know when we're doing something that doesn't serve our core purpose. We know when we're doing something that doesn't serve what is in our heart. And it's important to Be introspective and reflective in those moments and really kind of try and hone in. And as John mentioned in his story, you'd be amazed to know the feedback. You'd be amazed to see the feedback that happens when you really kind of embrace what's true to you and start taking the risk and practicing that a little bit. And food being a language. John, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. I can't wait to break bread and connect again sometime, maybe in Belize. I know after getting married, the fiance (laughs) wants to travel a lot. So (laughs) I might be calling you sooner rather than later. We'll make it happen. Absolutely. John, thanks again. And to the viewers and the listeners, as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain. But you can't have the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow. The No Rain, No Rainbows podcast is recorded at Camaraderie, a collective workspace in Greenville, South Carolina, right off the Swamp Rabbit Trail. If you're looking for a place to grow your business, network with other professionals, and establish your own workspace, Camaraderie is the place to do so. Get access to high-speed internet, private showers and towel service, free methodical coffee, and free beer on tap. For more details, be sure to head over to CamaraderieCowork.com or hit the link in the show notes and find out how you can lock in your space with Rage starting at just $99 a month. Be sure to tell them that Ted sent you and try it out for free. You never know, you just might find a new home at Camaraderie. Let's grow.